what we found was the vast majority of, e of ME patients and a lot of EDS patients hated physical therapists. And the reason they hated them was because they did not treat them correctly in the way they needed to be treated. Because to treat ME, you have to understand that you have to basically take everything you've learned and turn it upside down. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. What is the connection between a weak bladder in childhood and spine surgery in adulthood? For Melinda Maxwell, a diagnosis of cranial cervical instability, or CCI, provided clarity of that connection after decades of doctors dismissing her symptoms or giving a misdiagnosis. Cranial cervical instability, as its name implies, is essentially a mechanical failure where the head joins the spine, causing it to be unstable. And it can cause a wide range of mysterious and disabling symptoms that are hard for doctors, who mostly work in silos, to connect. For Melinda, the CCI diagnosis and subsequent surgery has given her a second chance at life. As a licensed physical therapist, Melinda has had to question everything she was taught in PT school as those practices can cause more harm than good in people with diseases that are medically marginalized and clinically misunderstood. Melinda shares her healthcare journey to finally getting a diagnosis and proper treatment and what she's doing now to prevent more harm to CCI and ME patients from her physical therapist colleagues in the future. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical air interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remedies, 
www.counseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Melinda Maxwell and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Melinda's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks Melinda. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm obviously Southern from my accent. Um, Fayetteville is home to um, one of the largest army bases, Fort Bragg, um, the home of the 82nd Airborne. So it's a, a very large eclectic town for North Carolina. Um, very hot, humid, <laughs> about two hours from the coast. Okay. And where did your life lead you in terms of education, career? I, um, when I graduated from high school, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I got my degree in physical therapy. You Canadians may know UNC Chapel Hill as the college that Michael Jordan um, graduated from. And I actually got to take a um, graduation photo with him in our cap and gown. So that was really cool. Wow. <laughs> right before he was world famous, yeah. Oh, wow. And so today we're gonna to talk about how your health intersects with the medical system. So take us on that journey. It's a long journey. I'm 56 and finally have started to get some answers. Childhood was, I mean, there are things that have, you know, gone on for me since childhood. A combination of both uh, weird, unexplained symptoms and undiagnosed um, emotional issues as well. Okay, so uh, give us a, a couple of examples of the physical and uh, the emotional symptoms you're experiencing as a child. Physically, um, one of the first symptoms that I remember has been um, urinary frequency and urgency. Even as a small child, my mother would encourage me just to sit, take my time, um, but that didn't nothing helped that um, and that that's something that it became a phobia for me because I always had to know where a bathroom was you know going on trips I was petrified I'd have to go to the bathroom because and it just it I when I was nine, uh, 18 a senior in high school my mother took me to a urologist and they didn't couldn't find any anything from their end so they did a minor procedure that was supposed to help me empty more urine to come through the tube uh, but I never noticed any difference from that and it it continues you know it continues on but that's one of the first symptoms that I remember physically the second symptom was uh, fatigue I was always tired. I did not sleep well for more than just physical reasons. There were other reasons that sleeping was very difficult for me. And 
I was just a tired child, you know, I would come home from like first grade and other kids would be outside playing or whatever. I'd head straight for the bed and take a nap. And I napped my way through life, really. Childhood to college to adulthood, I I had to have a nap to be able to function. On the emotional side, um, you know, part of it was the environment I was growing up in, but also I had this unexplained fear of just about everything. I was very, very afraid. I had a lot of anxiety um, and I would get things on my mind and I couldn't get off them off my mind, you know, so it took me lots of therapy. You know, I was diagnosed with separation anxiety when I was a a teenager, you know, getting ready to go off to college. You know, somewhere along the way, depression and anxiety got thrown in there, but not until I, I was about 27 was I actually diagnosed by a specialist with having OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was very treatable. You know, my therapist was and continues to be one of the top here in the country for it. And I really felt like at that point, life really turned around for me as far as my emotional health to have a name put on that. You know, why was I always afraid? Why did I have so many phobias? And to know there was a treatment that worked. So that's, that's one of the first issues I feel like took too long. It would have been nice if, you know, I had been able to have treatment when I was a child. Yeah, it sounds like you had many years of either gaslighting or slash misdiagnosis. Yeah, or definitely, di- yeah. Or dismissing of your symptoms. Uh, if you don't mind sharing, how did the OCD treatment go? What did you do? OCD treatment was very easy to do. You know, I learned specific techniques. My therapist wanted me to try medication and I did, but at the time they hadn't honed in as well as they have now as far as medication. Um, So I did try a couple different drugs and just, you know, as we now also know all these chemical sensitivities that I have, I just wasn't able to tolerate medication at the time. So um, it was all um, behavioral changes. They had a real impact on your quality of life. Yes, they, they really did. And I remember the first day I went to see her, I remember coming out of there thinking, I just had this tremendous relief. Like, I can actually maybe enjoy life now. You know, I mean, it was just an overwhelming sense of hope that, you know, I, I had mainly been in survival mode, not just physically, but emotionally for so many years at that point. Out of those fears and insecurities and phobias, I had made some bad decisions. You know, after I went into treatment and got better, 
I was able to make choices that I couldn't have made before because they were they were too debilitating. So life definitely got better. Well, and so in spite of all of the challenges in childhood, you managed to make it through college. Even though I had the fatigue, the sleep issues, um, started having pain. I would probably preteen, teenager. I was always very, very bendy. You know, I was a cheerleader. I could do splits. I could go to a door frame and do a split on the door frame. And, you know, I did some gymnastics, you know, things like that. So, you know, we didn't realize that, you know, I was, I was showing symptoms of something greater and more problematic then, but, you know, I was already having pain as a teenager. Still the fatigue was the issue. And for me, it was, it was, there was a baseline fatigue that I always had. And then I would have these flares where I, I just had to go to bed and I just had to rest was the only thing that would make it better. And then I could get up and, and go back at life again. You know, physical therapy school was very intense. We have long days. I've, you know, and I was able to, to get through all that, turn to lots of things to try to keep me awake, you know, like caffeine and, but I could, I could function, but then I would come home and I would go to sleep, you know, and I would have to rest. And then I could for months at a time, get up and do it again. But then then eventually I would need an extra day of rest. And then I would need more than an extra day. I, I was I was a good employee and I had a good relationship with my bosses. And I remember telling one, I said, I know I call out on Monday a lot, but it's not because I've been out all weekend kicking it up. I just don't feel well. And, um, you know, I had a good enough relationship with him that he didn't suspect anything else but it, you know it was an issue even by then in my late 20s it was getting worse I mean I really pursued my fatigue from the time I was a child trying to get answers on the fatigue and the other weird things that would happen like one summer my feet burned all summer we didn't know what that was strange rashes would appear and I didn't know what that was just a lot of different weirdness is you know when looking you know just unexplained things from different systems in your body so when you're 27 you've got some clarity around what was happening with your cognitive mental health when did you start to piece together what was going on physically Boy, that was that was a long one. I, you know, I started when I got out of college and started working. I would see various physicians for the fatigue, my thyroid checked, everything, and you know, it was always it was normal. It eventually became abnormal. I had a rheumatologist that actually worked in the facility 
that I was working in take a look at me. And it was back when fibromyalgia was just being heard of. And he told me I had fibromyalgia. But we didn't know anything about fibro in the 80s, you know, when it first came out. It was just more of you probably have this and that's it. And even us as therapists, you know, we we didn't have a lot of science or research to go on at the time as to how to treat it either, um, which is the irony of it all. Because, you know, I used to treat patients. I truly didn't know what to do. I mean, I tried, but I, you know, I just didn't have the knowledge base of what was going on at the time and that I would later have such a mysterious illness myself as a patient, you know, it's, there's some irony there. So the cycles kept worsening, you know, the need to take the crashes came closer and the recovery cycles took longer. So I was uh, going through a divorce, starting to get really, really scared that I wouldn't be able to work and support myself. Um, I had been divorced a few years before I met my husband that I'm married to now. And I just, I really began to just not know if, you know, what was going to happen. So I got married in 2000 and in just by divine providence, I call it, uh, I found an Emmy specialist in the town that I lived in and I saw him in 2001. And, and for folks who aren't familiar with the acronym ME, what does ME stand for? Well, ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. Unfortunately, it's been called many things, including chronic fatigue syndrome. Here in the U.S., we really push for ME-CFS or ME just to keep it simple, I'll say Emmy. Um, but he diagnosed me with Emmy and also with fibromyalgia, which had, like I said, been suspected 10 years earlier, 10, 20 years earlier, but still not that much known about it. And just to sort of link it to what's happening around the globe today, the majority of people with ME can trace it to having some sort of viral, sometimes bacterial, but usually a viral infection. And I wonder if in your instance, as many toddlers and children are just factories of germs, if, if that was also in your case, you had some sort of viral infection as a child never recovered. Um, I were after my um my ME specialist that diagnosed me planned to retire. I started working with another specialist who did a lot of immunological um work up on me and you know that was the first time in my life I ever actually saw abnormal values related to anything that I had and that really showed up in my immune system. You know, if you go to a you go to a doctor, you get a regular blood panel, everything looks good. But this was the first time on paper, um, and this was 2018, that I saw that my immune system was not normal. 
wait a minute. <laughs> Wasn't until 2018 that a doctor did an immune profile to find out how your immune system was working? Wow, so that's shocking. But it also must have been very validating to get that result. It was. It was extremely validating. Um, like I said, I, you know, just to, and, and to hear my do, this my new specialist say to me what we're showing here with your with your immune system we see this all the time with me we we see this i really feel like my first specialist saved my life you know i i always say that i just think that going to the place i did they have a, a they're associated with a university with a large immunological lab and they have the, the capacity to do the testing that they did there. It was definitely, you know, another puzzle piece. Little did I know the puzzle pieces would start really multiplying within the next couple of years. So take us down that road. You know, I had been with my my first ME specialist about, we had worked together about 16, 17 years. And he treated me symptomatically. You know, he was he was one of the the first in the country. He was a trailblazer in a time where other doctors wouldn't even talk to him, you know, because they thought he was crazy and all of his patients were crazy. He helped me. You know, I think the biggest thing that he taught me was he put me in connection with an online pacing class. And I really learned how to pace early on. Um, and I think that was one of the most valuable things that I continue to even use now. Sorry, and for folks who aren't familiar with the term pacing, what is that? Pacing is learning to evaluate your different energy envelopes, such as your cognitive envelope, your physical envelope, your social envelope learning where those limits are and then every day assessing and seeing how much energy needs to go to what in time it's you know you hear people sometimes describe it as the spoon theory you know this is what needs to be done today these are how many spoons i have energetically where do they go and you learn to get out of that push crash cycle where you feel good and you do a lot and then you crash and have to recover. Life becomes more manageable um, with the pacing and the planning. And, and that includes planning rest breaks before you're tired, preemptive rest breaks as they're called, taking care mentally, socially, I was able to do a lot of things, even though my ME was very moderate um, with planning. You know, like if I wanted to go to a special event, I would rest the week before, rest during the event, and then rest as long as I needed to one or two weeks after the event, but I could participate. And all that I learned how to do through pacing. Excellent example and explanation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So the, the pacing was very helpful in managing your symptoms and your quality of life. And so that was with the, the doctor. What, what was his name that everybody? His name, his name is Dr. Charles Lapp. 
and he's located at the Hunter Hopkins Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. He actually didn't get to retire for several reasons. Plus, he still advocates for the Emmy community. I mean, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. So I decided, uh, he gave us plenty of warning at the time, so I decided to go to the Institute for Neuroimmune Medicine in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And that's where I began working with Dr. Irma Ray. She's a colleague of Dr. Nancy Klimas, um, well-known, um, both of them in the world of ME here in the U.S. I was very fortunate to be able to work with her and that's when she taught me about the immune system. Her working theory was that a toxin something of some sort attacked my system and lowered my ability to fight infection. And, and that was why my natural killer cells were low, why I had a lot of inflama inflammation, and why I would have reactivation of Things like, I, I'm positive for H, what's called HHV6, which is roseola. So I've, I've had a reactivation of a virus that I had been exposed to in the past. And, you know, that's when I found out things like that. And what did Dr. Klimas prescribe in, sort of, in terms of treatment now that you have a better idea of how your immune was dysfunctional? Dr. Ray, actually, is who the, the doctor is that I work with. It's interesting because different doctors in the ME world have different approaches. And what her goal was for me was for to help my immune system naturally increase and improve so that I could fight these things off. So she, for me, wanted to try that with me first before she did um, a course of antivirals or something like that. So that's what we tried. Uh, a year later, my numbers were worse instead of better. And that's when the other puzzle pieces started coming together. Jennifer Brea, who was, um, you know, the, the documentarian of, of Unrest, the story about her life with Emmy, had been out for a while. And she's obviously well-known, well-loved advocate in our community she had surgery and she got terribly worse and then she got better she had surgery on her thyroid thyroid right and that's what made her worse and she theorizes because they sort of bent her head back and cricked her neck so much to do the thyroid operation is that correct right something something happened during the surgery that she came out worse. I mean, the surgery itself was a success, but she came out so much worse and continued to worsen. And that's when Jeffrey Wood, who I later came to know through all of this, his story, that's when it all came together for me. And for folks who may not have heard, I interviewed Jeff, he was in my right. very first interview, he was episode number right. one. So maybe tell a bit about Jeff's story. Well, Jeff led the way for so many of us. Our stories are so similar, um, except he had to go through so much because he was the first. And I, you know, I'm always grateful to him and Jen for 
what they went through and getting their stories out. Like I found out, like Jeff did, that I was born with tethered cord. That was part of what came out of everything. Sorry, and for folks who aren't familiar with tethered cord, what is that? Tethered cord is at the very end of the the spinal canal where the where the spinal cord should be free. It's actually tethered down is where the word tethered comes from. It's actually held down and it's not moving freely. And um, that can cause a lot of symptoms, including frequency and urgency. So, you know, at age 55, 56, you know, I'm learning this urinary issue I've had my whole life. I was born with a tethered cord. That was definitely a miss. They both also were introduced to the concept of, of a connective tissue problem being there as well. So, um, and the specific one that started being talked a lot about in our community was hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That is a genetic condition. Unfortunately, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome doesn't have a genetic marker yet. The other types of EDS do. Um, it's a spectrum disorder, meaning it, it can be very mild in some to very, very severe in others. I saw a geneticist who three days before my 55th birthday um, diagnosed me with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So, so now that explains why you were so bendy as a child and all exactly. of your life. Right. It's controversial, but there's a lot of overlap of ME symptoms and EDS symptoms. And so by the time I got to the geneticist, I had already been diagnosed with some of the other issues that can occur in both ME and EDS, such as postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, also known as POTS. And I had recently been pursuing a diagnosis for mast cell activation syndrome, which is called MCAS for short. I was already on that path to those pieces when I met the geneticist. The pain, you know, I'd had pain, just migratory pain all over my body. You know, at the time they, they thought fibromyalgia you know, I definitely do have fibromyalgia, but I do think there are other factors that cause a lot of the pain as well. So I was diagnosed with with the, a lot of the comorbidities as well. It was it was really like things were like really moving fast all of a sudden as far as you know new diagnoses coming in. You know, but it was I the last thing that the um, geneticist said to me. He stuck his head in and he said, oh, by the way, happy birthday, because it was just two days away. So I was two days away from 55 when I was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That sounds like it felt like an early birthday present. It did. The, the ME diagnosis had explained a lot, but the EDS diagnosis really explained a lot. 
So because Jeff and Jen had been very vocal about, you know, their eventual diagnosis was craniocervical instability, um, which is the connective tissue and an EDS patient obviously is affected. And that includes the ligaments that surround the head and neck. So many patients with EDS have a laxity of ligaments around their head and the, the head is not held up like it should be over the neck. And so you get um, like a kinking in the medulla of your brainstem there's a whole bunch of symptoms that that can come from that as well. So I pursued that doc. You know, when I when I heard their stories, I just knew. I'm like, that's what's wrong with me. I know that's what's wrong with me. You know, so I, I was I pursued diagnosis from the expert neurosurgeons that deal with this. It's a highly highly specialized field. You know, you, you'll, you'll get some imaging done. Your local radiologist says everything's normal. And then you, you take it to these expert neurosurgeons and they're like, well, you have this and you have this and this and this. That is amazing to me that radiologists don't know, local radiologists, unless they are dealing with the doctor who orders those imaging, they aren't aware that these things exist. Yeah, that's pretty shocking that the radiologists wouldn't know about it and how important it is if you suspect CCI that you contact one. I think there's only about four of these specialist neurosurgeons in the world and they're right. less listed on Jeff's site. Right. Yeah. Jeffrey has done a fantastic job on his website of explaining his story, how his diagnosis came about and who he's really researched. Um, and feels like are the best in the world to see. I mean, there, there are other neurosurgeons that do this surgery because it can be occur because of trauma. Um, it can also occur, occur because of um, like rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. And by trauma, but, you mean like physical trauma, car crash sort of thing? Right, like things like that, yeah. Physical trauma, yeah, Act, car accidents accidents in which the neck becomes involved so yeah I, I i was able to see one of the world's finest um just happens to be about five hours from me so i i didn't even have to get on a plane like a lot of people do i was we were just able to drive to see him Sorry, Melinda. So how was your health at this point when you're suspecting the CCI and you're going to have to make a five-hour car trip, which to a healthy person is not a problem? Um, well, I dealt with it like I dealt with anything, you know, with the pacing technique. I would, uh, my husband made a, a place for me to lie down in the back of our car and that's usually how we we went places as I would lie down while we were traveling you know I had to plan out okay get to the doctor you know rest before rest after luckily I had a lot of experience doing that by then so we made it work and and I will say that I you know my Emmy at that point was moderate I was largely homebound 
sometimes bed bound, but I could leave the house for about twice a week um, for a few hours with, with several days in between um, if I, you know, paced myself well. But it, it was, I will say, everything was getting more difficult for me. I, I had not, my symptoms had not um, worsened as severely as Jeff or Jen's, but there was just an despite my pacing and despite my participation in my pacing class that I've been in forever and all these things I learned, I was seeing a gradual decline in my ability to function. The number one issue I always, always had was fatigue known in the Emmy world, this hallmark symptom, post-exertional malaise or PIM. You know, like I told you from childhood on, that was had always been and continued to be the number one issue. I, I do consider myself moderate, but there are people with ME who are much sicker than I am. Um, those that are bed bound, I think of Ron Davis of the Open Medicine Foundation, his son Whitney is severely bed bound um, on a feeding tube blocking out light and sound every day. The the severely ME patients are really the truly lost ones of us. They're just not seen. They're, that's why they would call them missing. You know, they're missing from life. Yeah, it's hard for people to, healthy people to fathom just how sick some people with ME can be. Uh, and just for the uninitiated, the post-exertional malaise, that's the, like you say, the hallmark symptom of ME, and it's a delayed and dysfunctional response to exertion. And not just, not just physical exertion, but mental, emotional, any type of exertion, yeah. So you make the five-hour trip to get the imaging done on your neck. Right, I got to meet with a wonderful surgeon. Um, I had watched some of his YouTube videos, so I, I had a feel for him. And he took my imaging, put it in the computer, and, you know, in real time went over the abnormalities that were present, showed us the actual kink that was occurring in my medulla, which is at the top your um, spinal cord comes out of your brain. It's the brainstem. You know, he recommended that I work with uh, a physical therapist that specializes in craniocervical instability. I'm a PT and I had PT um, and she was, she's fabulous. I knew that surgery was what I needed to do personally and I based it on three things. Um, the first thing was my age. 55. The second thing was the length of time that I have been moderately ill, which was getting to be 17 years at that point. And I also based it on the severity of the pathology of the craniocervical and what's also what's called atlantoaxial instability. The, the pathology that that the surgeon was seeing was quite severe. I just intuitively knew surgery was the route that I needed to go for me. And who was that doctor? Because we'd like to get the ones that are so helpful, their names out there. His name is Dr. Sunil, 
S-U-N-I-L Patel. And he is with the Medical University of South Carolina, which is located in Charleston, South Carolina. He is considered an EDS specialist as far as this type of neurosurgery. He's, he's one of the top in the world. So it sounds like you did get the surgery? I did. I had surgery February 2nd of 2020 this year. Okay. So we're seven months later? Eight. Um, tomorrow will be eight months. So tell us how the surgery went and the, what's been going on since. Well, the surgery itself was hard very very hard because they what he did was he went in and he fused a plate the back of my skull and then he put rods down to the third vertebra so it's called a co for occiput um, to c3 that's the third cervical vertebra fusion so it's a very high high fusion. That's why it, you know, requires a neurosurgeon to do it. It, for me, it was extremely painful. You know, that was one of my first issues post-op was to get my pain under control, but we kept at it and we finally found the combination of medication to work. And so I was in the hospital, I was in the hospital five days. Some people get out quicker, like three days. And then I came home and recovery began. The first thing I noticed immediately was my cognition was better, which was a welcome surprise because my cognitive envelope had always been my biggest, you know, which had even perplexed my ME specialist in the beginning. There can be so many cognitive issues with ME um, and also with CCI as well, but I was able to read you know, to write. I just had learned I had to do one thing at a time. I couldn't multitask. I had to be careful. But after surgery, my brain exponentially, you know, got better. I could watch TV and send a text and talk to my husband and listen to music all at the same time. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And we noticed that, you know, I probably the second week after the surgery. And we were both just amazed. But as time goes, has gone by, my um, POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, has improved. And for um, folks who aren't familiar with POTS, what is that? POTS occurs, it's, a, it's considered what's called orthostatic intolerance, which means when you're upright, your pulse just really starts rapidly going about. Um, the, the blood can't circulate enough and there's a lot of rapid pulse that goes with it. You know, I, I think sometimes POTS is misdiagnosed as anxiety because there's the racy heart. But what's happening is the heart is, is really racing because it, it can't get the blood moving quickly enough. And so I spent a lot of my, my years flat. If you see any ME patients at all, we have that one. If you put a Zoom together and you had 10 ME patients, we'd all be lying down, most likely. 
Um, I spent most of my time flat because of the pots. I did, um, I was on medication, which helped. So, but I always monitored my, my pulse. I learned from pacing, my pulse needed to stay below or it would cause more harm. And that's called the anaerobic threshold. The anaerobic threshold is premature in people with ME. There's a lot of physiological reasoning behind that. So I knew my number and I knew what I needed to stay below so that by going over it, I would be causing damage and that would worsen the post-exertional malaise. So I had to really watch my pulse a lot, even though I was on medication to help keep it lower. I've seen a significant drop in my pulse after the surgery to the point that my ME specialist has, I haven't started it yet, but I'm going to start a very, very slow taper of my medication to see if I can come off of the medic medication for the POTS. I have mast cell activation syndrome, which is another one of those comorbid things that goes along with it. I think because that's improved, I have less headaches and then I have less headaches in general because I had headaches that were not mast cell related. So that has been a miracle because managing headaches has been a lifelong issue as well. I continue to work with a really fabulous migraine specialist and she was pleased to see the improvement in my headaches. The biggest thing that I have seen and the thing that I waited the longest to make an opinion about was my post-exertional malaise. That has, I can honestly say, if you look at the definition of, of PIM, I no longer have PIM. I still have fatigue and, you know, after being sick, unwell, and deconditioned for almost 20 years, that's to be expected. But I do not have the severe just need to be in bed day after day, you know, with the worsening symptoms, things like that. I, I still need to rest. I still need to pace. I still use all the things I learned, but just that severe post-exertional malaise that I experienced has improved. And, and that is a miracle. A huge, huge improvement in your quality of life. Absolutely. I considered the surgery a success early on, but I'm realistic about it. I mean, being diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome Two, that's a lifelong illness. You know, that's a lifelong condition and there are going to be issues that come up. So I went, I told you the reasons that I decided to have surgery. Not everybody has surgery. The surgeons are not going to recommend surgery to those who don't need it. Some people are, are dealing with this, this CCI and uh, doing other things. For the reasons I gave you, those are the reasons that I did it, but I also knew to be realistic about what to expect. I mean, I still have a lot of recovery ahead of me. I have a long way to go. How would you rate your level of ability today compared to pre-CCI surgery? 
well, I'm upright. (laughs) (laughs) I've been upright talking to you for quite a while. Um, How I dealt with that in the past was I, I would lie down and I would get up and do something and I would lie down you know, the fact that I can sit, I, I still have this support here if I need to lean back against it, but, you know, I'm upright, my head is over my neck, I mean, even just, you know, things like that, under other conditions you wouldn't even pay attention to, but that's a, that's a good thing, you know, my cognition, you know, that I'm sitting and talk to you for a long time, I, I could have done it before, but I probably would have pooped out on you at about probably about 30 minutes, you know, so my ability to engage and concentrate is a lot better. I can drive because, you know, that was, I could drive before short distances, but after surgery, because I knew going into surgery, I would have limited range of motion. You know, that was one of the the, the the neurosurgeons tell you you're not going to be able to turn your head fully just from side to side or to tilt it your ear to your shoulder that that's just one of the things you have to accept if you decide to do surgery so it was greatly limited after surgery and I worked with my therapist using her post-op CCI protocol and um, over time I have gained my motion and she recommended a it's called a swivel seat and it's I put it on my driver's seat of my car and it helps me I mean you can use it in any kind of chair you know if you have trouble getting up out of a chair turning to get out of a chair it swivels you you can move more with it so the swivel seat helps me turn my body as well as my head Um, so I was able to drive I guess that was probably around five months that was a big landmark when I was able to do that after surgery so I I can drive myself around I used after surgery I I would have arranged rides a lot just to save me energy when I had doctor's appointments and stuff I could take myself but sometimes I would have people take me Um, and then after surgery you know I had to get transportation everywhere but now I'm independent with my driving we actually went on vacation in August and we we have a jet ski and I drove it back separately. So I drove two and a half hours by myself in August. So that was, that's the longest I've done that in a long, long time. So that was exciting. Wow. It's like a second chance at life. Yes, it really is. With second chances come hopes and dreams what are yours? Well, you know, my husband and I are are still taking it, you know, taking it day by day, looking at the progress. I mean, I don't know how I could have done this without him. I really don't. You know, he tells people that I didn't choose my illness, but he did. And he has been by my side and the whole way and so supportive and you know unfortunately I can't say that for everybody in the Emmy world you know there there are people who become estranged from their families mainly because they're disbelieved you know or or the people think it's a psychological condition but I was so blessed 
to marry a man who who really loved me and cared about me and has been there all the way so we're we're still just taking it in right now um and I do still have a lot of recovering to do my dream is to practice physical therapy again I had to stop working as a physical therapist in 2002 but I keep my license I've always kept my license in the hopes that one day I could return in some capacity my ultimate dream is to work with my physical therapist who specializes in EDS and ME now because she sees a lot of ME patients coming through that have some form of connective tissue illness like EDS. So she's seeing more of those. She specializes in this, the CCI surgery. I would love to be able to work with her in some capacity. I think that would be awesome. That, that, that's my dream. Wow. Yeah. And there is a huge need for those skills. So yeah, I'm pulling for you to make that full re- or at least enough for recovery to get back to doing PT. Right. One thing I have, we started doing it before um, my surgery um, and it's, it's progressing along was I have a colleague in Alaska. Her name is Sally Radisky and she has ME, she has EDS. She has a lot of other mechanical issues that we're, we're learning about. She and I became friends on the internet and we would be in these Facebook groups you know, where people would talk about having ME, being diagnosed with EDS and CCI. And what we found was the vast majority of, e- of ME patients and a lot of EDS patients hated physical therapists. Um, and the reason they hated them was because they did not treat them correctly in the way they needed to be treated because to 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 treat me you have to understand that you have to basically take everything you've learned and turn it upside down um and i'm sure as you know one of the most damaging things that ever happened with me was graded exercise therapy recommendations or it's known as get Graded exercise therapy is where it's continuous with a gradual increase in the intensity and the duration, such as walking or swimming or riding a bicycle. Those things we know as aerobic activity can be detrimental to an ME patient. The community has been, has been actively fighting these GET guidelines for for what seems like forever and you know it still comes up every day so um, Sally and I and some other physical therapists and occupational therapists and physical therapy assistants and occupational uh, therapy assistants we came together and we formed a Facebook group it's a private Facebook group and it's for physical therapists and occupational therapists to learn how to correctly treat ME patients um, because it's just not something that's taught um, in physical therapy school. Chances are that they're going to run across an ME patient no matter what their area of specialty is. 
especially now since COVID, you know, there's that, there's a growing group of people called the COVID long haulers. They never got completely well. And as you said early on, the large percentage of ME is from a viral or bacterial assault. So our, the ME community is really trying to reach out to these long haulers and offer support, most of the community. So there's a need more than ever for physical and occupational therapists to learn how to properly treat ME patients. So we set up a Facebook group and we um, have an occupational therapist, Amy Mooney, who is one of our moderators now as well. And she brings a lot of experience because her daughter is very ill with ME and with EDS as well. Okay, and I'll include the link to your Facebook group in the show notes. But and your Facebook group is for physical therapists, so they can learn about treating ME, IC, CCI. It's for physical and occupational therapists, physical therapy assistants, occupational therapy assistants, and and students um, to learn how to treat ME. We have learning units that they go through, and we do have some of the comorbid comorbidities that that we you see within me such as pots and um, things like that so they can learn a little bit more about that as well too well melinda that is so valuable so incredibly valuable and i'm sure it will grow and expand because the need is so big and like you say with the long covid haulers uh, coming into our sick space they too will need support Right. So I, I encourage anybody that's listening, if you have these conditions, just send your therapist our way. You know, um, we designed it no matter what their specialty is, they could learn how to treat ME. We'd love to have them. They're, they're more than welcome. Well, great. Thank you, Melinda, for sharing your experiences and for the work you're doing moving forward. It's, it's very important. So thank thank you. you. Well, a big thanks to Melinda Maxwell for not only sharing her story, but for all the work she's doing to educate her colleague physical therapists about the proper care and support of people living with CCI or ME. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical air interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.